and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. There's a new Star Trek movie coming. Who's not excited? Before I get into this episode on the cynicism of extended universes and uh, growing franchises, I want for those of you who are old enough to remember the excitement of knowing when they were going to create a new movie of something. And I'm talking about going back to the late 70s and all throughout the 80s uh, when you got this news usually through magazines or maybe a blurb on Entertainment Tonight or something like that, but before we were inundated with data and information. I mean, aside from Star Wars, I, I remember being so out of the loop on data with Star Wars that I did not know they were making a sequel to Star Wars, the original 1977 film, before it was slapped with the label Episode Four: A New Hope, when it was just known as Star Wars. Uh, I didn't see the preview for The Empire Strikes Back, let alone even know they were making an Empire Strikes Back, until I was watching The Black Hole. And it was the trailer that was on before the film. And I was like, oh, wow, they're making a sequel to Star Wars. It wasn't like you got all these leaks and spoilers and all this stuff that was coming out to, to let you know and, and really ruining the impact. Because we're going to get into this in a little bit that franchises were not a given back in the day. Just because something was a big box office hit, it didn't guarantee a sequel let alone an entire series of films. So it was the same way for Jaws 3. Now, we all know what we got with Jaws 3, with Jaws 3D. But I didn't even know they were making a third one. Look, the closest that I got was when I read Ray Loin's uh, Jaws 2 log, okay? The Jaws 2 log. And at the very end, I think it was the last page, uh, they interviewed Sid Sheinberg and he said, you know, he was sitting in the Universal Tower, the Black Tower, and he said, I'm already working on plans for Jaws 3. And that was more like a ha-ha-ha kind of thing. However, it wasn't a given that there was going to be a Jaws 3. You hoped there would be a Jaws 3, especially since I was in sixth grade. Uh, but then when I was watching Young Doctors in Love, I think around 1982, it was March of 82, uh, that's when, or maybe it was, I'm sorry, it was March of 83, on the front of Young Doctors in Love, they had the trailer for Jaws 3D. And that was the first time. It wasn't again like I could go on the internet and there are rumors of this and they're making an announcement here on that and this website has this. I mean, you just had, for me, my number one source of information for movies, especially horror films, well, it was Fangoria. And I didn't see anything at this time that there was going to be a Jaws 3. I found out from the sneak trailer uh, the teaser for Jaws 3 on the front of Young Doctors in Love. When you hear about these franchises and they're making these new announcements that they're going to make another Alien movie or they're going to do another Rocky movie or another Rambo or Jurassic Park, now known as Jurassic World, we start getting this feeling of, oh, and do you remember when Disney rolled out their big acquisition of Lucasfilm and they put up on the screen, I can still remember it was, I think it was like Kathleen Kennedy and a bunch of other people standing in front of this giant like Apple TED Talks kind of screen where they they were predicting Star Wars movies and their various spinoffs and, and all of this stuff. 
uh, for like the next 50 years. And then you started to realize there could be too much of a good thing. I mean, think about it. You had Indiana Jones, right? You had Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Raiders of the Lost Ark was great. And, and there are probably very few people who could disagree with that. And then you heard they were making a sequel and it was going to be called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And it was the middle of the 80s, so people are still psyched. And it was only a three-year difference between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom. Well, then Temple of Doom does well, but it's not received all that well. It's considered darker, yada, yada, yada. Maybe the franchise has taken a misstep. If there is even a franchise, a sequel still does not dictate a franchise. However... We get Last Crusade, but that took five years more to do. So now we're at the end of the 80s in 1989. And then we wait another 20 years for Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. And we know what we got. Now we also know there's going to be a fifth film. And it's in production. Uh, Jones is going to still be played by Harrison Ford, uh, who will be... I think by the time it's released 80 something someone can correct me on that but are we excited do we want an 80 something indiana jones i mean it seems like the audience really didn't want a 70 or 60 something indiana jones uh in 2009 harrison what has this got to do with star trek well they've been announcing a new star trek for some time and we're going to go into all of this star trek is really going for me to be more of a metaphor for the other franchises as well. I'm going to invoke some of these other franchises and maybe how tired and a little long in the tooth they've become, or most of all, not even about age, but the fact that overall, I think a lot of them have become pretty joyless. One of the things before we get into Star Trek and the announcement of this new Trek movie and all of that is, do you remember the experience of watching these films in the theater. That is already a huge difference. Look, I am a huge Godzilla fan. I'm not so sure that we should continue this uh, Marvel kind of franchise machine and applying it to Godzilla. I love seeing new Godzilla movies. I'm, I'm excited to see Godzilla versus Kong. But when you start hearing about all the things, because again, we're inundated with this data, it's either for me, it's making me cynical toward this or it's sucking the fun out of all of it. They're showing way too much on this TV spot and that TV spot. And you're starting to piece all of this together. Can you imagine if we had this kind of data with uh, Empire Strikes Back, where we could eventually piece together that Vader is Luke's father? We, we didn't know any of that. I, like I said in a previous podcast... That just dropped out of nowhere while watching The Empire Strikes Back. None of us knew in advance. And I remember somebody on Twitter asked, what was your reaction when you found out when Vader said, I am your father? And it was kind of like, oh, oh shit. But again, I was thinking more like later on, I would have been more shocked to know that Luke and Leia were brother and sister, that they were siblings because they had the hots for each other. That to me was more shocking than Vader being their father. But we're going to get into that in a little bit too. So with this kind of, you know, inundation of data and spoilers and everybody rushing to get new breaking information out to you, it's sucking the fun out of things. And I'm not so sure that everything needs an extended universe. 
I'm not so sure we need Star Wars movies into the next 50 years because now it's not special anymore. And it's like that line out of The Incredibles. When everybody is special, no one is. And releasing a new Star Wars movie every year, and if they're not going to do that now because of the performance of, of Rise of Skywalker and such and the reception of The Last Jedi... That, well, in between now we have The Mandalorian and now we're going to have an Obi-Wan spinoff in, in a TV series and we already have uh, another one, right? I even forget. That's what I'm saying. We're going to get into all of this in a moment. We are being pummeled with content and that goes back to Scorsese who I uh, will also be invoking in this podcast. So bear with me. You know, the, the origins, let's go back to Star Trek for a moment and the origins of Star Trek and go right to bare basics with the original series. The origins of Star Trek, the original TV series, Gene Roddenberry was the creator. It came from idealism, a a time before the moon landing, a, a time when we dreamed of living in places above us. We looked up at one time. We had John F. Kennedy telling us we we choose to go to the moon. We kept looking beyond ourselves, beyond the horizon. And now we just look down and we're looking at screens and we're looking at screens to tell us how to live, what to watch, what to do, how to feel, what to be outraged by, what to cancel. We're not looking out there beyond us anymore. We've become so self-absorbed. I think we're seeing something coming together that was started uh, maybe 40 years ago or so. The, the long-term effects of fandom and the bulldozing of properties into franchises, and what happens in the long run versus the short term. Looking at the origins of the original Star Trek series and its death, we have to look at what really was in play here. The show came out before we landed on the moon, and we had this unique show, and Roddenberry called it I wanted to be a wagon train to the stars. In other words, drawing the analogy of the westward push of the United States going out further with really without manifest destiny. I mean, the whole point of the Federation was is to explore, but not interfere or subjugate. And then the show made it through three seasons and it died. But it was resurrected by fan letter campaigns once the show went into syndication. And while this is a great thing to show the power of an audience to a network and say we love the show, and although it didn't bring the show back, it showed that you know there is an impact on what you're making, that it's not just content, that you're making a difference to somebody out there. But on the flip side, this is also where everything started to go wrong. So it's kind of like the Big Bang, right? This is before there were extended universes And everything exploded. And arguably, it's through Star Trek. So keep sticking with me here. You've probably listened to previous episodes uh, where I I very clearly make it out that fans are both a blessing and a curse. Because eventually, they will turn on and devour what they love. No one loves and hates Star Wars more than ardent Star Wars fans. And the same can be for Star Trek. The same can be for horror. Horror fans will love you one moment and turn on you and rip you apart in the next. And I saw that, for example, even with Death House. When you had fans 
that were so dedicated to the five, what I always call the five points of the pentagram, these five icons, and that is Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Candyman, Pinhead, and Jason Voorhees. You have these five, and to these very uh, vocal and, and unified groups, there is no horror, but these are all icons. That's what they believe the horror world is. They don't want something different. They say often that they want something different, but they really don't. And so when I was making Death House, and I'm just making this brief pit stop on this, I said that the worst thing that they can be doing is calling this the expendables of horror because it's going to put a false idea into fans' heads that we're going to bring together Jason and Michael and Freddy and Candyman and all these people, and they're all going to fight like some Freddy versus Jason. And I've talked about this before. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. So you have people who either really love Death House or really fucking hate it. And that's because usually it did not meet their expectations of a monster mashup. We were looking to create an extended universe with Death House. There is a sequel written to Death House. It doesn't mean it will become a long-running franchise. But we're going to go into something else because the gimmick of Death House was assembling all of these horror names together, all these faces, all these iconic faces and names, and putting them into a single film. But the catch was, do I make a movie where it's like, oh, look, there's Tony Todd. Oh, look, there's 30 seconds of Robert Englund. Does that count? Because then you rip off your audience and people get pissed off then and go, well, that wasn't really it. I mean, you see Robert Englund for 30 minutes, for 30 seconds in the background, or Sid Egg walk by in some mental patient gown, and I guess that counts as a cameo. What a ripoff. So you can't win. You're already set up against the odds. And the other issue has become, which I'm going to get back to Star Trek now, are the conventions. Because reassembling all of these names is great, but it wasn't as special as you think it is because they're already assembled and you can see them usually what before the pandemic about once a month because they show up at your favorite convention hall or, you know, a conference room where you can get their autographs, meet them, shake their hands, get your pictures taken with them. So the inability to connect with them, which used to be like in the 70s and early 80s before the internet and such, that's all gone now. So that specialness of seeing everybody gathered together, I felt, was kind of gone because it's been diluted uh, through the conventions. And I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. What I'm saying is that it does take away some of the luster. Jaws 2 flipped the final switch on high-level franchising. And what I mean by that is, look, we've always had sequels. I mean, you can go back to the time the films were made and then you had serial shorts and things like that. They were already a franchise in a way. But there wasn't the power of, of major superpower marketing behind it. And so while sequels and franchises were always around, they were kind of often looked upon as overglorified serials or looked down upon as, as ringing out the last dollars of a waning property. And, and I've talked about this before that the Universal Monsters showed this. I mean, where you went from high profile, high status films like Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the Mummy. By the end of World War II, these properties were no longer really terrifying properties and they started to get played for laughs, which culminated with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So you had monster mashups and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and, and all of this stuff and combining the monsters together and Boris Karloff coming back and playing different roles, no longer the monster 
it, it just kind of like ate itself kind of thing. And, and it was, you know, you're kind of pulling out that jacket out of the attic with the moths flying out. It's still there, but it's, it's a little ragged and falling apart. Jaws 2 comes along and Spielberg turned down Jaws 2 by saying that Jaws is a standalone movie and making a sequel or more films to it is akin to like a carnival trick. I think that's what he called it. Something like that. He, he did not look favorably on a sequel. And even though they had trouble with the sequel and do you bring this back to Amity? I mean, what are the chances of a shark striking another place, uh, the same place? The point is... Jaws made $100 million in six weeks, and suddenly studios started waking up to what they were missing. Jaws 2, in my opinion, is the film that legitimized franchises and sequels. Not saying it invented them. It's not the first sequel. But for a while, Jaws 2 was the highest grossing sequel to a movie of all time. So before that, though, you also had King Kong. In 1976, Hollywood saw the power of remaking old classics. And Kong was ripe for the remaking, even though now we have CGI and they could have even done more. The 1976 King Kong was not a financial failure. And some, to this day, absolutely love it. And I I did a whole piece on that, another episode on that as well. But it was Star Wars that revived science fiction. And the stories are all over the place of how Lucas tried, you know, shopping Star Wars all around till he finally came to 20th Century Fox. And even they were hesitant to do this. They're kind of like, ah, we don't know. And then Spielberg scored with Close Encounters of the Third Kind and science fiction is coming back and and 20th Century said, okay, we'll try this. And then there was the story, I believe, where, you know, Lucas said, you can cut my pay and I'll just take a bigger chunk of the merchandising in the studio's. Uh, The execs kind of laughed at that thinking, okay, sure, sucker, we'll do that because there is going to be no merchandising on this film. And we all know how that turned out. However, Star Wars brought science fiction raging back. And suddenly studios were looking for their own science fiction movie and box office hit. Now, does it mean that there was going to be a sequel right away to Star Wars? That part I do not know. We know we got one, but it took almost four years to get it. Star Wars came out in 77 and The Empire Strikes Back did not come out till 81. So there had to be some hemming and hawing and mulling and do we do it, don't we do it, that kind of thing. I'm I'm not sure on that part of it. I'm sure there's a fan out there that could fill me in on, on that missing data. Mix these factors together of remakes and Jaws 2 and science fiction all going ahead and, and you know moving things in a forward direction. You now have studios thinking franchises because they never had a movie like Jaws before that made an incredible amount of money that the way that it did and spurred a national and global phenomenon. It's the same way with Star Wars. Star Wars, when they saw the merchandising juggernaut that this thing became, when at Christmas time they had to send out empty promise boxes because they could not fulfill the toy orders, studios went, we got to do this and we got to make more of these things. Because there is so much money to be mined from all of this. And that's where we go to Star Trek. So there was going to be a new Star Trek, but it was going to be a TV series. And I believe they were going to call it Phase 2. And I've done uh, a previous podcast episode on this. If you listen to my Kirk, Picard, or Cinema episode, which talks about in detail 
the inception of Star Trek. And I also did it as well with uh, my uh, episode with George Lucas being the Phantom Menace, if, if you go back and look at my previous episode on that. But the success of Star Wars, it forced Paramount to find their own space franchise. And well, why go too far? You've got one sitting in your vaults, Star Trek. The TV show Phase 2 was canceled and they morphed it into a feature film. They had to make something that could compete with Star Wars. We're talking major, grandiose, big screen special effects. So Paramount knew we just can't cannibalize Star Wars. We've got to make it that it can compete with George Lucas and these young Turks, these, these you know Spielbergs and Lucases that are taking Hollywood by storm. We've got to come up with something that's going to be big screen, not just taking a TV episode and putting it on the big screen. The convention circuit was still on the lunatic fringe of events. The conventions were not the big things that they are today. And Star Trek, arguably, really started all of this. And even though uh, a lot of the celebrities don't like doing them, you know, these conventions kept Shatner fed and, and kept the legacy of the show alive. It kept it in the minds of people. So, you know, reuniting the cast, I mean, that was a big deal. And as a kid, I remember when they made a big deal about this, when they gathered the original Star Trek cast together and they put out some set photo on the bridge of the new Enterprise. And there they all were, you know, Shatner and Doohan and Deke- Forrest Kelly and... All, all of them were back, and Leonard Nimoy, and, and that was a big one too. They didn't know if they were going to bring Leonard Nimoy back because he wasn't so sure he wanted to come back because he felt that Spock had kind of poisoned his career and, and uh, typecasted him. But that's all stuff you can you can read up on. I see, I didn't go to the conventions, and most of all, I was not a big Star Trek fan. I watched the episodes here and there when they popped on TV on a Sunday afternoon in syndication. I was too young when it finally left the air, when it was actually on in its three-year run. And during syndication, I was still a little kid, but I would watch it here and there when I caught it because, you know, hey, it's cool. Spaceships, right? Aliens, monsters, all that stuff. That was cool. But I can't say I was really a Star Trek fan. And when the convention started, I never went to, I've still yet to go ever to a Star Trek convention. I've never done them. But I know that they were things, and I know that William Shatner has given accounts where there was a time after the show that he was living in his car, and he was doing low-budget horror films like The Devil's Reign and things like that and Kingdom of the Spiders. The issue is fans were kind of emboldened by their letter-writing campaign. Like, see, we, we altered the course of a network. We made them hear us. Fans started taking credit for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And while there was help with that, especially in their letter writing campaign at at the end of the 60s, you can thank George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for Star Trek The Motion Picture. You can directly thank Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars with a little help from Jaws 2. The goal was to have this big screen concept. So now bear with me here as I go into as to why Nobody's really excited about a new Star Wars movie. And as I had said, this couldn't be seen as a Star Wars ripoff. This had to be big screen. And folks, this is the problem. By focusing so much on that, the film version, the motion picture, which has its merits, it's beautiful to look at. It has a great score. And it set the tone for the subsequent franchise and gave us all the spinoffs and everything that we've got. 
But the original motion picture is way too long and it didn't have any heart and it had very little soul. And the characters, that's what made the show so appealing. They were kind of sterile. They were in these awful white kind of you know, uniforms. They all acted like they were just kind of getting together again for the first time, that they didn't quite all remember each other, except there's a brief moment of it when McCoy beams aboard the Enterprise and he's bitching already about being transported and he's you know, being drafted back into uh, Starfleet and Kirk is like telling him, you know, calm down, Bones, calm down. That was the brief moment. There's not much heart and interaction between these characters that made people love the TV show so much. I was excited to see Star Trek The Motion Picture. I was in sixth grade and a friend of mine said, hey, we're going to go. My dad's going to take us up to the mall and drop us off. And it was over the Christmas break. So, you know, that was in sixth grade. You're starting to do things outside of school with your friends that you don't live near. Like this was a school friend and at that time was my best friend. And so we're all pumped to go see this movie. And I really expected something like Star Wars. And instead, there was a moment where I fell asleep for maybe seven to ten minutes in this movie. And I remember it was right around the time when Ilea returned as the probe, as the V'ger probe. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, I thought she died. And, and he had to explain to me, no, that the probe kind of, I think, made a copy of her or something. And I remembered sitting in the theater. Again, I'm in sixth grade going, I really don't care about this. And look, I didn't know all the dynamics behind Spock and, and Kirk's relationship. And I had seen a few of the episodes. That was it. I was there for a good Star Wars kind of time. And we didn't get it. I don't think the Enterprise fired on a single Klingon ship throughout the whole film. And I was expecting something to happen here. And instead, we got the whole God thing. We got Kirk going out and the Enterprise going out to find God. And for me, as a kid growing up, you can argue this back and forth. Some fans will say, no, that's to make us think beyond that because what came out of the movie at the end was a whole new species, a whole new creature, you know, a, you know, man and machine evolved. I get all of that, but not to a sixth grader, okay? And look, it was reflected in the box office. The film did well, but it was considered a disappointment. Although they said, we're going to continue going forward with these but we really have to change our course on this. So for me, and even looking at the motion picture today, and I've watched it you know, several times, I've looked at the director's cut, the extended version, all that stuff. It's a beautiful film, and it's not a bad movie, but it is kind of heartless and soulless. It's very sterile. It's very clean. It's very big screen. It might be the most cinematic of all the Star Trek films, but it's also the one that's really lacking a lot of its heart and soul. So as I said, the first film was seen as a disappointment, which showed there, there was really also no plan in place for the long-term goals of what was to be a franchise. Because keep in mind, while this film was out, while Star Trek The Motion Picture was out, they are developing The Empire Strikes Back. So we don't have any kind of extended universe yet. We don't have long-term plans of a franchise. And just think about this. A Jaws 3 was still in gestation at this time. Jaws 2 came out in 78. Jaws 3 did not come out until 83. So you have a five-year difference between these things. So it shows you that studios were kind of slow 
to catch on to this. Not like now where it's like, okay, we have uh, Force Awakens and boom, next year we're going to have Last Jedi and boom, then we're going to have Rise of Skywalker and in between we're going to have Rogue One and then we're going to have Han Solo or Solo, a Star Wars story and we're going to have this and we're going to have that and then we're going to have the TV show. It wasn't like that. They were still kind of uh, crawling before they could walk and before they could run. Now, The Empire Strikes Back as a sequel, that went in a different direction. And one, I will argue, this direction is the one that saved the franchise and set the template for space sagas. Empire changed everything because you could have... Imagine if we got just another Star Wars movie, right? Look, many people will look at the original Lucas-directed Star Wars and go, okay... Yeah, when you really look at it, it's a pretty simplistic story. Imagine if we didn't get the superior Empire Strikes Back in the way of better story, of opening up the space saga and why we connected it to people. Darth Vader, it becomes a soap opera, is Luke's father. And then we find out Luke and Leia were siblings. And we go on about, you know, we start developing, you know, Jedi masters as Yoda and Obi-Wan wasn't the, and we find out more. We started to expand that world. We found out that Obi-Wan and the Jedi belonged to something more and bigger and that the force was something bigger as well too. We got so much more of, of the mythos behind it. But imagine if we just got another Star Wars film where all it was about was just raiding another space station. Can you imagine that? Because that's kind of like what Return of the Jedi was. It was just really another raid on a space station. And let's face it, that's all The Force Awakens was. The Force Awakens really did not expand anything or give us much of anything new. But let's stick right now with Empire. Star Wars could have been the first and only film. But why The Empire Strikes Back works, and I said this in my previous podcast on George Lucas being the Phantom Menace, is that they removed George Lucas from the equation. Lucas had to go uh, offset on another part of the world to make Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he wasn't on set. He wasn't domineering the script. He wasn't overshadowing the director like he will with Return of the Jedi. And that's why you see that Empire and Jedi are two very different motion pictures. Okay, very, very different. Because Jedi, I'm sorry, Empire is the one that why people come back to and say this is the most loved and the best one out of the franchise is because it really had not much to do with Lucas. If I'm not mistaken, I think Lucas showed up for maybe two days or possibly as long as a week on set. And here's the best part. Lucas feels that Empire is the worst of all the Star Wars films, which tells you kind of where his mind is. So Paramount and Star Trek, taking a cue from the Empire Strikes Back, they went back to basics and they went the dark route and they got the franchise on track with a direct return to the series with Khan. Star Trek, the original series, was always simple. It was about simple human needs and desires and the overall concept of man doing good, learning from his mistakes, and evolving. It's about something more than us, that there's something more out there. But the first film kind of sidestepped much of this. And again, while I said it was a technical feast for the eyes, and it does have its merits, the motion picture was soulless. In fact, one critic called it the motionless picture. But fans ate it up. And again, this is part of the problem. The fan base supported it, and that is fine. 
you just can't support it blindly. So Paramount, as I had said, course corrected and they stripped Khan down in budget and focused on a simple story and a simple pitch. I mean, think about it. Pitch Star Trek the motion picture in 30 seconds or less. Now try it for Khan. Which is more succinct and easier to grasp and engaging? Khan comes closer to the wagon train to the stars theme that Roddenberry originally embraced. And interestingly enough, Roddenberry was the problem in overcomplicating everything. His insistence on time travel plots and God as a child themes eventually got him kicked upstairs after the success of Wrath of Khan, which by the way, Roddenberry rejected. He did not like the script for the Wrath of Khan and he kept trying to, to do these sequels to the motion picture. One of them was that the crew goes back in time to prevent the death of Kennedy. That was one that he always had to go uh, back to, which we got a taste of in Star Trek IV. So Roddenberry was relegated to a backseat as the next several films kept the simplistic tones of friendship, atonement, and redemption. And that's what made the subsequent original series films work. You had success with The Wrath of Khan. And Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, gets mixed results, but you saw some heart and soul in that with Kirk returning to save his friend, his friend of so many decades, and he's going to risk everything. And I don't care what anybody says, the hijacking and stealing of the Enterprise is the best moment in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. It's a fantastic moment. But then you got Star Trek IV, and it was a huge box office success. In fact, Today, I believe it still holds the record as the largest grossing of all the Star Trek films. And it was showing the box office legs that, that a middle-aged franchise could give us. And that is also what gave us the next generation. It was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, that showed Paramount we really got something here. Because by this point, keep in mind, Return of the Jedi had already come out about three years earlier. Star Wars was kind of asleep because there were no plans for any more Star Wars films, if you remember. It wasn't like, okay, Return of the Jedi, which was a huge hit. Uh, we're going to have another one. No, Lucas said he was kind of done. He went on to focus on other things. That's when we got Howard the Duck. That's when we got Labyrinth. And he was branching off into all other aspects, going into television. The 80s were ending and times had changed and a new tone was being taken on. The process of true world building outside of the original series had started and fans were now gaining more power. The internet was not here yet and the fan voices were contained to letter writing campaigns and, and the conventions. They were relegated to these, they had these very tight parameters. But the money potential of conventions increased concurrently with the aging of the franchise. The fans were growing older. The kids that loved Star Trek were now adults and they had money to spend and Paramount saw it. Look, the original uh, series toys never did that well. I remember being a kid before the motion picture came out and they had Kirk uh, action figures, dolls. They had Spock dolls. They had uh, phasers, toy phasers. And if I remember right, they weren't even officially merchandised properly or licensed. And I remember they had this fold out plastic Star Trek Enterprise bridge and I think I had that for Christmas one year, but I never really got into playing it because I never watched the show and I wasn't all that inspired. I mean, like I said, I had seen a handful of episodes, one of them being Space Seed. Now you had a whole different kind of literal enterprise here. 
I knew of someone in 1988, I believe it was, who spent $700 on blueprints of the Enterprise D and spent another $200 for a Captain Picard uniform. And suddenly now this merchandising was taking off. Star Trek was trying to catch up to Star Wars and the fans were taking this all into a life of its own. But why did the next generation TV show take off and endure so far beyond the original life of the original series? I'm going to tell you why. Syndication. Syndication provided the out-of-the-box growth and marketing, not limiting uh, the exposure to just network TV. Arguably, by the end of the 80s, you had now four networks. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. And that was a big deal when Fox came along and created a fourth network, which The Simpsons helped solidify. You, you didn't put Star Trek on the network. It didn't go back to NBC. What they did is they licensed it out to syndicates. And that gave huge exposure for the next generation and gave an audience. It's kind of like the crude early version of going viral is really what it is. And syndication, it, like I said, it, it reached far more people in the day and age of cable TV. And now you add the growing home video uh, business. So you could release every so often box sets, get your first season of the next generation, get your second season. And that reached more. And it was building the worlds and it was bridging the generations and it's increasing the fan base and it's feeding the original fan base and it's fueling the desire for more, more, more. We want more. A friend of mine once said, and he's a huge Marvel comic book fan, um, and I remember since second grade, he loved them, and, and to this day, he still loves them. But he said, you know, comic books stopped being fun when they stopped making them for kids and started focusing on the 30 and over fan base. He said, comic books are no longer written for kids. They're written for man children, is really what they are, men children. And the same can be applied to Star Trek. I mean, Shatner spoofed it famously in 86 on Saturday Night Live with his whole get a life, will you people? And Shatner, he's never been comfortable with the whole fandom thing, although he's grateful to it. I mean, the next generation allowed the bridge between old and new generations in the show from the first episode. If you remember the, the encounter at Farpoint, uh, Dr. McCoy, who's like 120 some years old, whatever he is, he gives his blessing to the new sick bay on the Enterprise D. And we have a moment between him and Data, which is to reflect upon him and Spock. And, and the fans are going, okay, this is legit. We're pandering to the fans. And then we keep going. In one of the second or third episodes, we refer back to an original series episode, uh, The Naked Time, with they did The Naked Now. And, and it keeps going on where we're, we're letting the fans know all is okay. We're not taking this from you. Be the fans. Enjoy this. We're, it's all all right. No one's going to hurt you. And then they started trying to shoehorn in original characters. And one of the most forced episodes was when Scotty appeared, when James Doohan appeared as Scotty uh, in Relics, where they gave this guy nothing to do other than just to be Scotty. And he's annoying people. He's annoying LeVar Burton. And everybody kind of treats him like he's, you know, the the old grandpa that farts too much at the Thanksgiving table, that kind of thing. And, you know, they give a, a, a bone to the fans by uh, recreating the original series bridge of the Enterprise. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, 
the captain's chair for that bridge, instead of replicating it, they actually got it from a fan who made his own replication of it. So you see what they're doing here. They're really pandering to the fans. Is Star Trek The Next Generation really about bringing in new converts to Star Trek or just pandering to the original fan base that now has a lot of money on its hands to buy $700 blueprints of the Enterprise D? Now, Star Trek The Next Generation will also go on to continue this world building and bridge the old series with the new with unification, if you remember, and it was a big deal that Leonard Nimoy's Spock returned. But they used that as a cross-fertilization, a cross-promotion for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, because that was being heralded as the last movie of the original cast. And Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, left on a classy note. But even then, a lot of us that weren't the ardent Star Trek fans... Uh, that did watch Star Trek. I was a casual Star Trek fan and I've mentioned how I got into Star Trek, the original film series. I like the original films, not so much the original TV series. And I can't really say I really enjoyed the next generation film series. And I've talked about how Wrath of Khan made me the convert when I was in high school. And I'm not going to repeat that whole story here, but it's safe to say that I was not this zealot fan of Star Trek but more of a casual one. And I occasionally caught The Next Generation, especially when I heard one of the old characters was showing up. So Unification tied it all together, mentioned Captain Kirk, because they kind of didn't talk about him. I mean, Kirk had saved the Earth how many times? Kirk was the one who brought peace to the Klingon Empire and, and the Federation. And they very rarely mentioned him on The Next Generation. It was a very casual kind of thing. And then we got Star Trek Seven generations. And I've already done a podcast on my problems with generations, but the problem I will say about this is Star Trek Generations was on its way continuing the the very clunky path of world building and extended universes, but doing a really sloppy mediocre job of it. Star Trek Generations was not just a cash grab and a cynical ploy to exploit the two captains thing. It was a springboard off into the new generation films. And the problem is it was fucking lazy and it was mediocre. And I list all the reasons to support this in my previous episode, uh, Kirk, Picard, or Cinema. So take a listen to that. So many great enemies could have been explored in the next generation movies. Where the hell was Q? He was never even touched upon. They didn't even talk about him in the next generation movies. And the Borg, I mean, arguably, possibly, next to Khan, the greatest enemies in the Star Trek world and fucking great enemies outside of the Star Trek world. I mean, they were given a lame time travel presence in in First Contact. Instead of giving them like a full onslaught of Earth, like really taking this in a different direction. And it was all part of the cynicism of, of fan pandering. And you can see where this was taking hold. First Contact was only a success because of the Borg and sucking up to their following. That was it. By this point, Deep Space Nine was on the air and Voyager and that was in the mix and and the worlds were starting to overlap. And and I got to tell you, I didn't care. Actors were making guest appearances on different shows and, and the canon was overlapping and the ability for Star Trek to appeal to people who didn't know Star Trek was now effectively lost. When you sat down, I mean, think about this. Try explaining all these worlds and these overlapping TV shows and spinoffs to somebody that never saw a Star Trek film. Watch their eyes glaze over, man. 
you look back at Star Trek for the voyage home, it's what people call the one with the whales. And it was made for all the non-Star Trek people. You didn't have to know much about Star Trek canon to enjoy the voyage home. You really didn't. In fact, it could likely hook in new viewers and probably did who would have normally avoided Star Trek because they wanted to learn more about these people. That's what happened to me with Star Trek II when I was in high school. I wanted to know more about this great... I mean, I knew enough that Kirk and Spock were close friends. But Star Trek IV could really... Because you had this whole non-Trek story. But then by, you know, the late 1980s, mid-90s, you've, you've got timelines and spin-offs and characters from one show on another and, and all done so fans get a hard-on and, and tune in as the next generation films, I'm telling you, weren't quite lighting anything on fire. I mean, the next generation films never escaped the feel that really all they were was what Paramount tried to avoid in the very beginning, and that is just bigger budgeted, longer TV episodes. First Contact is really it, in my opinion, for the next generation films. The next generation blew its feature length load on First Contact. The series and its TV spinoffs were being made for fans and, and not to attract new viewers. It was effectively caught up in its own canon and not trying to appeal to the basics of wonder, exploration, and a sense of risk and advancement. There were no movies about this kind of thing. It was just more furthering about expanding the worlds. It was still world building. That, that wagon train to the stars had now become a Rube Goldberg machine. Like I said, imagine sitting someone down in the middle of Deep Space Nine or Voyager or eventually Enterprise or any of those freaking spinoffs or Nemesis, the, fe the last feature film, and try explaining the characters and their backgrounds. You can also call this Expanded Universe Fatigue, EUF. So by insurrection, the next generation films, in my opinion, were lost. I mean, the mediocrity of generations and the brief flash of first contact they were all squandered. It was a fan subscription service now. That's what the series had become. And the subsequent spin-offs proved this. Canon was placed in a secondary position to fan service. The Star Trek film franchise withered and, and it culminated with the tepid nemesis, if you remember that, that was so indifferently received. Many people forget it gave us Tom Hardy as its villain. That was one of the first Tom Hardy debuts. Additionally, a cut of the film, if I'm not mistaken, was leaked out onto the internet without the visual special effects completed, and that added more stink to the movie that already had alienated the film from everyone except the most devout fans. I think to this day it has the lowest opening ever for box office. Additionally, you had a director for Nemesis who had the same contempt for Star Trek that Devlin and Emmerich had for Godzilla. And even the cast will tell you that. I think it was Marina Sirtis who... I think in a convention uh, interview one time, uh, corrected Michael Dorn to say that the director of Nemesis was an asshole. It was all wrong. And it was a runaway train heading downhill. And new converts to the franchise were almost impossible. Non-fanatical fans left the series and the spinoffs were all met with varying levels of success to outright failure and indifference. I, I can't even tell you how many there are. There were just too many voyages and too many strange new worlds and fatigue was so high that Paramount canceled any future next generation movies and decided to give the franchise a breather. And that's where we get J.J. Abrams. And you can hear more about my J.J. Abrams take, especially 
on a Star Trek Into Darkness. If you go back to my previous episode on remakes, reimaginings, and repackagings, the J.J. Abrams formula is what I call no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, it is. And that is whether he, whatever film he's making, if anything leaks out about any potential secrets or spoilers, he goes into denial, denial, denial. No, it's not. No, it's not. And then in the end goes, okay, you guys were right. The 2009 Star Trek reboot was like the best cinematic hat trick, man. And I've talked about this before. It breathed in new life and it gave us the best of both worlds. Old cast of Spock, fused with the old parallel universe plot that led to a chance to take the entire franchise into bold new directions by casting all new faces to the iconic old series characters that were beloved, and they pulled it off. Chris Pine's Kirk is fantastic. Carl Urban was wonderful as McCoy, and and I'm telling you, it all worked in that 2009 reboot. It really did. The 08-09 reboot was, was amazing. Hats off to it. We had a new cast, we had new faces, but they were the old beloved characters. And imagine being able to go back and do it all over again, only differently. New takes on old plots or bring in new characters and start all new stories or do them all over again. The world was yours. Instead, to pander to fans, and instead of doing something truly different and bold with this fantastic maneuver, it was squandered with Into Darkness and remaking and badly remaking The Wrath of Khan, the most beloved of all the films in the entire franchise. They decide that the best step after doing this incredible writing trick on Star Trek, the the reboot, (laughs) they wasted it on a shitty Wrath of Khan remake. Again, the Abrams formula was implemented the no, it's not, no, it's not okay, it is, to cover for the potential plot leak when I think it was Benicio Del Toro. He left the project uh, early on on Into Darkness and fans speculated that he was going to be Khan. So Abrams cynically cast, you know, flavor of the month Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan to throw everyone off the scent and pulled a real boner in my opinion. And darkness killed Star Trek. Even Abrams disavowed it, ignoring it completely while trying to go the action route in Star Trek Beyond, which also fell on its face, because by this point now, no one really cared. What if you made a Star Trek movie and no one came? And that is what Star Trek Beyond gave us. The series continued to develop with Picard returning to the Federation in that TV series on CBS Access, which served really as a coda to Nemesis and gave us the heart and soul lacking from that film and really the entire Next Generation film series. So CBS Access launched that whole new series, and then they announced some animated Below Decks TV series. Is it a comedy? Does it really fit into canon? I don't know. Where do they all fit into the timeline? Who knows, and who really cares? When Paramount started talking of a scaled-down new Trek Kelvin timeline film, I went to my manager, my representation at the time, with a 10-page treatment, that would revisit the Gorn and Kirk's most dangerous game style plot. Scale it down to Kirk, an enemy, and the crew. You want a scaled down Star Trek movie? I gave you one. No plots, no detailed plots with overlapping characters, no conspiracies, none of that. A boiled down one-on-one action survivalist film that anyone outside of Trek fandom could relate and enjoy. 
It's one of the, also the most popular episodes of the original series. But no, that's not the way that Paramount wanted to go. So my question to Paramount is, so which way exactly is it that you do want to go? It can be argued that the path of Star Trek over the last two decades has been uneven at best with its most stability during the original series films. It is also convoluted. Following Star Trek canon is akin to the infamous diagram from Back to the Future 2. So much focus on the fans. Picard was the one that reached out back to the human story, that series. Life and death, purpose, risk, and living. Star Trek's problem is that Star Trek has become content. It has become universal fodder. It's become a fan subscription service. So when news of a new film dropped just last week, it was like if the tree fell in the woods. Would it make any noise? And the answer was no. Even trying to put out news, no matter how valid that Tarantino had a script and was interested in an R-rated Trek film, really did little to excite anyone. My reaction was like hearing fuck used the first time in Picard the series. I mean, I'm not a prude, but do we need it? Is that what Trek is about now, being edgy, rougher, grittier, dirtier? What about hopeful? What about that humans could actually make themselves better and evolve into something that benefited to teach each other and look to something bigger than ourselves? I mean, we could really use that now, couldn't we, in the wake of this pandemic? That Trek is gone. Arguably, the undiscovered country was the last to address such themes. We now have so many spinoffs, so many series, Look, man, even I couldn't tell you what is what and where they all fit together, and and I don't really care. And not because it's all too complicated. I just stop caring. I have other shit to do than sit and figure this all out. That's the danger of universe building. They need to keep expanding, or they collapse under the dark matter weight of themselves. We are seeing this with Star Wars right now. New Disney films, spin-off films, series that take place in various stages of the timeline, old book canon thrown out, others preserved. We no longer know what is legit canon and what isn't. And it's all become pretty tedious. And it sucks all the fun out of it all. Star Trek isn't any fun any longer. And you know what? Neither is Star Wars. The overzealous Star Wars fandom, the convention zealots, They made Star Wars uncool. The ones who cry at trailers and post reaction videos made people like me, who plunk money down to simply enjoy a good film, flee the franchises in fear of being lumped in with these men children. When I was 15, Star Wars was fun. Superman was fun. Comic book movies could be fun. No lengthy trail of canon and overladen stories and 20 some entries. It was good versus evil. Star Wars was dark lords and white knights and crazy creatures. You could go see these films, get caught coming out of one of them, and not act like you were just leaving a porn house with your zipper down. Now I'm embarrassed to say I enjoy Star Wars. I feel I need to justify my enjoyment of Star Trek, the original films really only, and how I was indifferent to the TV series until I saw The Wrath of Khan, whose genuine heart and soul story made me a Star Trek feature film lover. Look, I had plenty of girlfriends growing up. I partied, I was popular in school, I went to the dances with a pretty girl on my arm. I loved all kinds of films. I loved horror, and I recognized that all of these were 
They were just good movies. They were good ones. And sometimes I even enjoyed the bad ones. But that was the thing. I enjoyed them. I didn't worship them. Toxic fandom is like chemotherapy. It kills the empty hole in you. But it also kills the good stuff around it and in the rest of your body. You got your multi-universes. You got your extended universes like Marvel and DC now have. And most of all, it looks like what Godzilla and Kong are going to give us. But to what end? Aside from the rabid fans, are these movies actually fun? Or are they just filling the required next steps in the stories and canon? Just who are these films being made for? To entice new kids? Or for the aging fan bases that shell out the real money for the tickets, DVDs, and merchandise? Look, I am not a comic book guy. I'm not a Star Wars guy. I'm not even a Star Trek guy. But I have enjoyed films from all of these arenas. The theatrical experiences for a number of these have been what life's all about because I saw them as films to be enjoyed, not content to be consumed and regurgitated and revered and bought and owned. That's what Scorsese was talking about that everybody gets all over his shit. Extended universes are just another sleeker name for franchises. There may or may not be a new Star Trek movie. And for me, it doesn't make any difference anymore. What happens when that begins to apply to other franchises and series. We're already seeing it with the aforementioned Star Wars, DC, and Marvel, perhaps even now with Godzilla, as I said, which is really nothing more than Marvel and DC with giant monsters. We saw it fail with the Dark Universe with Universal's classic monsters attempt. Ridley Scott tried it with Alien, and it was a convoluted mess already complicated by the two failed later entries in the original series of Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. So where does that go now? I mean, there's talk of an Alien TV series. Is the video game isolation counted as canon? There could be another Weaver entry as well, too. It's all a mess. And it's become tiring and exhausting. And it sucks the fun out of it all like an open airlock. There's another Star Trek movie in the works, folks. Yay. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. I look forward to coming to you with another episode real soon. Thank you.